This is the Outside Religion Podcast. You're listening to Nicholas Davis and Josiah Brandeman. This is Season 1, Episode 1 on Deconstruction. Thanks for listening. We're talking about our stories of deconstruction. And we're beginning from the beginning with youth group. (laughs) (laughs) I remember being in a Sunday school class with like you, me, and maybe two other people. Yeah, it was pretty small. Mostly the donuts and coffee that we stole. I would steal (laughs) coffee from the adults. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. wasn't the coffee shop at the church named something really cheesy like Holy Grounds? I think you're right. Or holy, something? Holy Grinds. Holy Grinds. <laughs> holy Grounds coffee. Yeah, you're probably right. That's terrible. <laughs> Looking back. <laughs> and so the church we went to was a Calvary Chapel. And as I've understood Calvary Chapel, it was a fairly standard one at that, right? It was a normal, typical Calvary Chapel. John Calvin was a name that we never heard. And church history in that context was, you know, there were the original writers of the Bible, the you know, the apostles, and then the gospel writers and stuff. And then a bunch of church stuff happened that was basically not good church stuff. And then there was the Reformation where the we got the Bible again. And then there was Chuck Smith. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That Maybe some Augustine thrown in there. Maybe. Yeah. OT, Paul. Yeah. Maybe Augustine, if we got lucky. If you got and lucky. That was, that was history. Then, history. And then, of course, the great reformer, Chuck Smith. That's right. The super <laughs> apostle. <laughs> it wasn't like a your average liturgical reformed church but it was very focused like it it had that that focused reformed identity like but like like you like you said church history kind of started at the reformation in a lot of ways that is not a reformed identity as far as i'm concerned (laughs) so that is a that is a narcissistic american evangelical identity that's what i think fair fair that'd be my categorization for that so it was just i would just say this it was a typical church in america that was right. not that was not mainline mm-hmm. that was not influenced, highly influenced by the calvary chapel movement mm-hmm. maranatha churches you know vineyard that kind of stuff all kind of tailored around the person the man the myth and legend chuck smith <laughs> yeah and then daddy chuck i i I don't know. In, in Sunday school, I think, I, from what I remember and from what I've been told, I was that kid that knew all the answers to the trivia, like which which king built the temple and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so you were party pants for the facts. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> so I got the, all the donuts. The right answers and like the Sunday school answers, <laughs> Jesus, you were the first answer and raise your hand. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's oh, fair. <laughs> uh, that must have been obnoxious as hell. Yeah, at least you weren't like <laughs> throwing, throwing rocks at kids and stuff. <laughs> also, I got, yes, I got disciplined in youth group by your sister. <laughs> actually, it's throwing walnuts. We threw walnuts at a kid. 
was awful. Oh yeah. 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 She like saw us doing it. It was bad. I was, <laughs> I was one of those bad kids, bad youth group kids, I guess, but also good. I tried, tried to listen and learn stuff. So yeah, back so, to our youth group experiences. Um, you know, first as young kids, it was sort of a, you're, you're stuck in your classroom type age group only. And then by the time we went into middle school, right. still same, similar age group. We're like the, we're like the youth group experiment, the millennials yeah. who went through this whole yeah. thing where it was the first ever experiment. And, and so they hired a couple different guys through those years to be our youth group savior. Yeah. And that was always hard because you'd get one and you'd like the person. And then there was infidelity or our church had some kind of not paying the bills. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So the person got fired or he did something or said something that someone didn't like and they got fired. And so I think there was a rotation of like five or six different people. I remember. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty hard on kids because you're like making connections with somebody and trusting them with like your first experience of coming to faith or whatever. And then that person's gone out of your life. So that that does a number on kids on on the psyche. Yeah. The reason I, I had all those answers in Sunday school was because my dad was an armchair theologian. Mm-hmm. and made sure that we had time every Sunday. We, we, we called it Sabbath school, and I hated it. I always, I always, wanted, to go, I always wanted to go through Revelation and hear about the end of the world. And most of the other stuff, it was just a barrier to go outside and skate or something. But he drilled all of that information into us, which now I'm grateful for, but I kind of resented it back then. Yeah. Um, and And you were, you were, you had a very structured home life in that way. I could see how you're thinking church was reformed because your, your dad (laughs) took seriously catechesis of your children. Yeah. Um, My experience was reformed. Yeah. That was was... very different from my experience. (laughs) Cause your dad and my dad hung out. Yeah. Um, Both in that, an inkling nerded out out, totally. Right. What was what was your religious training then? You know, I'd always I'd always seen my mom reading the Bible growing up, but I never really saw my dad reading the Bible. Hmm. We never really read. We didn't do family devotions in the home, for what that's worth. But you know, we we went to church, and for me, you know, I always had that like that. I was always wrestling with that struggle of going to school. You know, going to public school and then you have your church friends. So you have your school friends, then you have your church friends and trying to reconcile or figure out what does Christianity even mean in this context and does it even matter? I think over and over again, I was just really embittered by church because it was always just this boring thing that didn't really matter or relate at all to real life, even at a young age, because it was always just talk about end times was always yeah. like revelation. Like that was the youth group message stuff always was, you know, Jesus is coming back and uh, left behind, you know, you're going to get left behind. <laughs> and I'm like, well, please leave me behind. Cause you guys are kind of crazy. And I'd rather just, <laughs> you know, 
but then you're kind of yeah, like, like fearing it and dreading it because it's all motivation by fear. So then you're like mm-hmm. kind of going through some kind of unreality thing with that because you're you're just worried. You're terrified a little bit, but then but you're so young. Sounds pretty weird. It's like if, if, if heaven is full of you people, I'm I'm good. I'm I, Hell is fine. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of so my religious upbringing, I mean, I think my relationship with my dad, that getting back to circling back to the inkling stuff, you know, it wasn't until I was old enough to really process theology. And I'm not talking about process theology. That's a different topic. Well, <laughs> just for the record, process, like, <laughs> but actually internalize what's going on. When I started having questions about Calvinism and debating my dad, that's when we started bonding over theology. So not to say it never happened. It was just, I think that during my childhood, my dad wasn't really a Christian. There were a lot of unrepentant sins that he had not yet repented for, you know? So he was kind of a distant father in some ways when it came to Christianity until later on in life. And part of that was uh, his cancer that really drove him to start to start to change. God used his cancer to to do that. And from then we started bonding and talking about theology. And so, so it was kind of like your childhood experience of that happened for me a lot later with my, with my dad. And, and it was after far long after the whole Calvary chapel thing. Yeah. Like I, I started debating my dad, of, of course, when I was a teenager, but later in my teenage years in college is when I really started debating my dad on, on theology in youth group, he's still high school after a couple of missions trips that I started to really question the stuff that my dad was telling me, which a lot of it was good stuff that I value today. And a lot of it, I, I still disagree with, but debating theology was sort of a, a healthy version of being able to question what he was saying. Hmm. I mean, I did, I also did the unhealthy stuff too, but <laughs> it was a, it was a dialogue where I could say, Hey, I think you're wrong. And that produced a conversation that was, okay, tell me why. Prove, prove your point. I pushed my dad away a lot. Um, I think similar to what you described, like debating the theology was a way of bonding for sure. But it was those missions trips really that started. That was the, the kind of first glitch in the matrix, as it were, mm-hmm. where I started saying, wait a second, this is, this is complete crap what are we doing here or this isn't for people we're trying to help. This is for us to feel better about ourselves. Right. And my dad was really big on church history. Like we watched all sorts of historical movies about the Reformation. <laughs> so funny. I knew about the indulgences and I was like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. We're, this is indulgences. You're paying for us kids to go so that you can absolve yourself for not doing anything on your own. Yeah. Like yeah. that's what are we doing here? Well, that's like, that's the thing of, of hiring a youth pastor is you're outsourcing the responsibility that you're supposed to be doing and having as a parent over your kids and training them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians five and you know other New Testament passages, and you're outsourcing that for some some paid person that you can kind of whip around and fire if you don't like them, or if they're telling the kids something that doesn't mesh with what the parents want the kids to learn, whether it's biblical biblical or not. Right. Just so they, everyone can have their own best Sunday experience and best life now without (laughs) your kids annoying you and you're going to church, you know, 
not having your, your kids in church distracting you. So there's a lot of big problems with all that stuff that, I mean, looking back, I mean, there's stuff that we can certainly celebrate about it maybe, but I don't know. We are talking about deconstruction right now. So we're focused on the, on the pretty bad negatives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the missions trips for me was the first like spark first glimmer of light outside the cave for me. You're talking Plato's allegory. Good use of that. (laughs) And I stayed mostly in church until later in high school. And I just didn't, I still considered myself a Christian, but I didn't go to any church because there wasn't any church that I wanted to go to really. I didn't see a church full of what I judged to be Christians. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I just didn't go. When did that start for you? When did the not going to church thing start for me? Yeah. I started to make that switch towards the end of high school. Like my last, my senior year of high school is where I decisively started to really give up the whole trying church thing. And I remember going, I went to church junior year because there were like two cute girls that I really liked at a youth group that was at a different church. So I was going to that kind of thing for a little while. As you do. Yeah. As that whole thing. Cause you know, Oh, I'm just going to youth group. Your parents are like, cool. And you can go smoke, <laughs> smoke with the skater kids out back and, you know, talk about which girl you were, you're going to end up with. Yeah. My senior year is where I started to really wrestle with that question. What's it all worth? I mean, Christianity is just more and more and more rules heaped upon me of all these things I can't do. <clears throat> I did not hear a message of gospel ever from my memory of, of, the, of the thing. It was always just usually of like, oh yeah, well, we're better because we go to church and those kinds of, you know, fundamentalist messages were always ringing through. And anytime there was talk about some kind of hope, it was always a, a hope that was basically escaping this life yeah. and entering heaven. And and that was it. That was the good news. And it's like, that, it's not good news, actually. That's, that's, um, that is, that is terrible news. <laughs> it's neglecting your neighbor and your own responsibilities in life. Yeah. It's escapism is what it is. So that, that message didn't really sink well with me. And so I said, well, you know, since all this is, is, is more and more rules, I'm going to go where there aren't rules and hang out with my friends and kind of do what I want to do. At least, you know, at least I'm having fun in this life. I don't know about this whole God thing. So my last year of high school, I did a lot of stupid stuff, really, really stupid, dark stuff. And I could go into detail, but that continued on until college, uh, halfway through my first year of college. And then, and then I started wrestling again with religion because I couldn't, I couldn't um, get religion out of my head. And yeah. so that was where it started though for me. Lots of drinking, lots of partying. I think after you shed the, the legalism and the focus on piety versus, versus love, once you, get, once you get away from all the things that the sort of inherited faith that you only know what you've been, what you've been told and you know, something's not right. Mm -hmm. But then there's that haunting question of what if, what if at least some of it's true? Mm -hmm. And that, like you talked about fear before, like with a perspective that it had better be true. Whereas the, the haunting fear that comes after you, after you've deconstructed Mm -hmm. is more of a, well, wait, what if it is? Mm-hmm. That's also terrifying in its own way. Right. 
but more haunting and instilled fear. Right. Yeah. That's the difference between an external force telling you, is this right or is this wrong? And then your internal voice going, is this right or is this wrong? Right. Right. So it's, they both are fear driven. Mm-hmm. But in my journey of faith, I try to avoid black and whites as much as possible. But there's one black and white that I've adopted. Anyway, there's a division in the middle. On one, on one side, you have fear and guilt and shame as versus conviction. And on the other side, you have hope and, and love. If something is driven by fear or obligation, that's not of God. Right. And if it's guilt... I mean, what are the, the early names for, for Satan? The accuser, right? What right. comes with being accusation? Right. Guilt. So guilt is literally of the devil. <laughs> right, and shame. Yeah, guilt and shame is... But that sort of internal fear, I think, for me has been constructive and that it pushes me to say, wait a second, what if I'm wrong? What if everything that I've constructed and, and assumed to be right what if that is wrong? And that pushes me to examine something that I wouldn't, wouldn't normally go out of my way to. Right. It sounds like what you're saying is that you can be driven by fear or love can kind of lead you. Yeah. And that there's, that's the, that, that's like this categorical difference. That's the, the great divide. Mm-hmm. Is this divide between fear and peace or guilt and freedom from guilt? And I'm, I'm terrible at this because I, by taking verses out of context, because as a kid, I memorized verses, just the verses, right. but the verses that come to mind are where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Mm. Second and, Corinthians. Um, yeah. Um, or two Corinthians. <laughs> oh gosh. Not that debate. <laughs> Not that debate. <laughs> Amen. You're not wrong. Um, that is the Scottish way. I mean, <laughs> the current residing president wasn't wrong when he said that when he wasn't president. Uh, <laughs> technically, wasn't wrong. People do say two Corinthians, who are like Scottish Presbyterians. <laughs> two Corinthians. Yeah. Let's open it up. Get out, get out your book, and we'll start the day. <laughs> start um, the day. That's funny. <laughs> Outlander, man. Okay, back to what we were talking about. Um, and then, and then the other one is. Perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah, and, it, and it kind of that kind of drives that either or of either being motivated and driven by love or fear, or pushed uh, over and toppled by fear, <laughs> as the case may be. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good summary. I mean, those are those are great biblical verses to run to in talking about this. Uh, so, so for you, when when was the the shift from deconstruction towards kind of reconstruction? It's hard to articulate um because again i never considered myself outside the church um as a whole i stopped going to church i was still really i went to a a christian college and i don't want to say rebelled because that's too much of a generalization but i ignored as many constrictions or constrictions constructs rules As as i could i also considered myself because I considered myself a Christian and because I leaned on my, my upbringing. And, and this is the sort of time when I started to be able to question things with my dad. And I could say, wait a second, what if Jonah wasn't real? Does that actually change anything? And 
he was a, was a Calvinist. And so I would, I would debate a lot of right. Calvinism with him. And because he was, I took the other tack. But as I usually did, I usually just played devil's advocate just because it was fun. Just for debate. And sake. yeah, so it was, it's weird because my deconstruction and reconstruction a lot of times happened at the same time. Right. It was, it was the rebel, the ideological rebellions that helped me in small doses shed my inherited faith and examine my faith from my own, which at each point, it's almost like the, the formula was, well, what if this isn't true? What do I know to be true? How do I know that to be true? Right. And then if I believe this, if I actually believe this, what does that mean? How do, if I, if I believe that the legalism doesn't matter so much as the Sermon on the Mount. If that's what I hold on to, then what that means for me practically is that I need to forgive the people that I've held a grudge huh. um, against my whole right. life. Right. I need to forgive the people that treated me terribly in high school youth group. So it wasn't a, a wide arc so much as a bunch of little ones. Okay. Um, it's sort of like a, a Cartesian, throw out everything and see what I can actually say that I do believe. Mm-hmm. And that, and that was my, that was sort of my process. Hmm. It's funny how radically different our journeys are from the post youth group experience, because I went from being in public school and having the ability to kind of shut off the whole Christian thing to public university. So, hmm. and I, and I deliberately went as far away in California as I could from where I grew up. And all the people I knew. So I went from Northern California down to Southern California at the very bottom, San Diego, California, and just tried to get away from Christians, tried to get away from that kind of weird bubble thing that that was and just live it up and party and have a good time. And so just a a totally different experience at that point of in my deconstruction of the faith and and being outside the church, I didn't have to go to church. I could sleep in after a, a night of having a great time partying and no consequences and no fears. And yet in the midst of all that, I was miserable. Yeah. And I, I really hated my life and wanted to end my life and had some really vivid dreams of like hell and stuff, which was really trippy and weird. I was smoking wow. marijuana and stuff too. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wondering how much that played into it, doing all the college things. Right. And just was really freaked out by the reality. What if I'm wrong? Yeah. And so that led me on a journey, a kind of spiritual new agey type journey of shedding everything like, no, not Christianity. But at the same time, I can't exclude it. It's a world religion. So I started from the base, you know, intellectually and then experientially too. And, and one of the things that was funny is I went to a, a campus that, had, you know, 35,000 students and every single day I ran into a freaking Christian. <laughs> like sat next, two girls who sat next to me in class. They were both Christians. Like at, at one le- le- lecture that I thought, oh, this is for sure going to be a great class that's going to deconstruct Christianity and I'm excited for it. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm sitting next to two girls and they're, they're both Christians. And, you know, one of them is super cute. And so that, <laughs> so there's, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and just my dorm roommate or whatever, like, or somebody on my floor who's like a Christian and campus crusade, like leader running into me like 50 times in the same day. And I'm like, get away from me. You know, I'm coming back from a party. You have crusade in your organization's name. Get Go away. Yeah. That's why they changed it to crew eventually. 
that's based how old I am. But, you know, I literally coming back at 3 a.m. in the morning from a party and I get picked up by a group of frat boys who are like Christian frat boys. They're like, what are you doing out this late? We're like going to do a Sevy run. Like, come on with us. And I'm like, I'm like drunk and okay. And then I end up where like go, this is like crazy. You know how like the Lord works in really weird, mysterious ways. And I was kind of hounded down and had to reconsider Christianity and put that back in the bin of religions that I have to take seriously because I have to look at this. And so I tried to, as objectively as possible, I, you know, I took all the major world religions classes. I, I, I studied the Quran. I studied all, all these primary source texts of world religions to try to like investigate and say, hey, well, is this true? How do I know, you know what's true? And all of that journey led me to, to the gospel, to even just reading the gospel of, of Luke and finding the gospel that Jesus lived and died. He lived a life I could never live and died the death that I should have died in my sin and took on sin for me that message like permeated all, all of my studies so intellectually and emotionally and from the ground up, I started to be re rebuilt. Despite, despite your resistance to it. Yeah. I was really resistant. I mean, I, um, I no wonder you're a Calvinist. what's that? I said, no wonder you're a Calvinist. Yeah. That's, that's probably why. Cause I literally, <laughs> you know, the, the irresistible grace thing. Right. Like I was resisting every, every part of grace I could. I was running away from it and said, hell no, get away from me. When I, I literally, the, the, the people who moved me into my dorm room were Christians. And I was like freaked out. I was like, get out, like, go, I'm not interested. Like they were like leaving, somebody like slipped a flyer underneath my dorm room and stuff, you know? And I'm like, I'm not going to your stupid thing. It's, there's not booze there. They're not really cute girls there. What are, like, come on, not happening. <laughs> No and then you meet women. a girl and you, and you find out she's gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So all, all that to say, um, yeah, we, we did have radically different journeys and yet we find ourselves not totally outside of church now where we are presently. Yeah. I think the two things that I, I think are really, really, the two points that are clear there that are similar in our experiences is for me, that sort of Jonah moment where, you're trying to move away and you, it just follows you. You're a Calvinist like, too. The hound of heaven. Spurgeon, <laughs> Spurgeon the like hound of heaven. God's going to cut you down, bro. Let's try to cash. <laughs> wherever you're going, like it haunts you. Yeah. And the second thing is that pervasive haunting question of what if I'm wrong? Right. What if I'm wrong? And if I'm right, what if I take this seriously? Yeah. I think that once I started reconstructing, the more those, those rebellion, deconstruction, and reconstructions happened, the more I found myself at odds with the church hmm. as I experienced it. Yeah, and, I, had a, and I had a lot of frustrations with the same thing because when I, when I started to go, okay, I'll give Christian church another shot, after I got to Mormon wards and Eastern Orthodox churches, which technically are Christian, but they're not. I mean, it's it's categorically different from the evangelical experience and, and that kind right. of thing. <clears throat> and, you know, went to all kinds of interesting, you know, Unitarian churches and random stuff just to like give everything a go as much as possible, yeah. you know. 
And uh, I ended up going, starting at the mega church. And then, you know, after two years being in a mega church context here in San Diego, going up the leadership ladder on that and hating it, what I saw internally and how it's, it's a corrupt corporation kind of stuff. And then going, going to like church, just me reading my Bible in my, you know, college room to (laughs) home church dynamics to, okay, here's a church plant to here's a stable church to just trying all kinds of different types of Christian churches to figure out what is Christianity in practice. Yeah. That was, that was part of my reconstruction journey of trying to figure out what is church according to the new Testament. Was there a moment for you where you realized, wait a second, I'm not going to find a church that doesn't have some sort of hang up. Right. Like, yeah, that was the reality is that there's always one pitfall or another. There's always, you know, the churches of Galatia or the church of Corinth with their sex problem or, you know, the church of Philippi where they mostly have things are pretty good, but then their God's their belly or something like that's going on or, yeah. you know, like, okay. Uh, or church of the revelation, the seven churches, you know, yeah. There's, there's all these different problems in every single church that no church is a true perfect church. Mm-hmm. That every church has these gaping imperfections, just like we do. Yeah. And that's, that's actually part of the truth about church, is that it's not all figured out and perfect. At least yeah, the, body, would, the body is not, because it's yeah, broken. That's, and that's kind of where I'm at today, is like, at some point... I don't have to like your music because I, I went through a period where I hated hymns mm-hmm. and I thought they were stale and boring and dumb. And, and it wasn't now you're like, worship, oh, shoot, I this is like, great. Right. If it didn't sound like a U2 ripoff, I wasn't interested. See, um, I'm going to raise you. I'm going to up you. I went like <laughs> exclusive psalmody. I went like, you know, if <laughs> it's not whole- specifically a, the Bible, and not just the Bible, just the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms or 151, depending on East Orthodox or, you know, not, uh, you know, if it's not these, then you're not singing the Bible. You're not actually singing to God. You're worshiping oh, wow. like that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. And then you can go super from, nerd quick. And I went from the, from the, the contemporary worship only to I'm like, wait a second, this is, this is the poetry and theology at the same time, and mm. I can't stand the the not can't stand, but I'm I'm less interested in contemporary worship now. So I, I don't care whether I like the, the music or not. I don't really care if I disagree with the sermon because at some point I'm gonna if I if I if I only went to a church where I agreed with everything that the pastor said, I wouldn't go to church. Yeah, because you'd be fine because um, you would be able to do that yourself. Right. Like if that's the case, I might as well preach my own sermons. There was, there was some, some, uh, founder of, of America, Thomas Paine. <clears throat> I don't know if he was a founder of America. No, I've still, I've still Googled that. I forgot. But, uh, he wrote common <clears throat> sense. Uh, that, common, uh, common sense. He says, um, my mind is my church. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. You don't want to get uh, to that. That's pretty my, dark. My church, my church is me in my, in my thoughts. And so I don't really care about whether or not the church is is consistent with my identity as a as a Christian, and whether I see myself as as reformed or not, or 
Pentecostal or not. Like at some point, the body of Christ is the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And if you're feeding the homeless next to me, if you're, if the gospel is good news to the poor, as Luke says, right. Um, not just economically destitute, but the, the, the folks of, of lower status and standing that have been ostracized by the structures of society. Yeah. Then you're, I don't care what your pastor says. You're, we have the same theology. Right. And at some point, even then, like the body of Christ is the body of Christ. Yeah. And, and the point, the point of the body of Christ is that it's a bruised and broken body. Yeah. That's the exact reason why Jesus came to be bruised and broken was that he himself took on that brokenness and became sin for us. Yeah. The whole point of church sucks and is not perfect is that the body of Christ should be pointing to the head, Jesus. It should be pointing to our need for the groom, the bridegroom, you know, who is, who's the, the perfect one who we need more than anything. And and so all of our deconstruction, deconstructing of the church <clears throat> leads us to this redeemer. Mm-hmm. Who's the only one that can reconstruct what can't be rebuilt apart from him. Yeah. And I mean, in a lot of ways that's kind of mirroring the, the bookends of Babel and Pentecost in a lot of ways, like, the, the sin that has divided us, he repairs right. at the end. Um, and he gives back. Like what's, what's amazing yeah. about Babel is it's all towards this unifying language that everyone understands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Pentecost is not a, okay, we're all just going to understand the one common language, like the English language. But it's actually not, it's not at all that. It's not narcissistic like that. It's not uh, Eurocentric or ethnic, ethnically centric. It's actually, no, the, the Holy Spirit has come to now have everybody understand each other, but each in your own tribal tongue, in your own country's distinctive, you know, your, your ethnic backdrop or background. Like, no, we, we, we want that ethnic difference. And that, that that difference is actually is what's celebrated in the sense that we are, yeah, we're divided in a sense where we can't understand each other, but we can now. Like that, that's yeah. the great active, whoa, this is the God who is a God of every tongue, tribe, and nation who's uniting together what we could never have united ourselves. 